Now, as I said, we're going to spend some time in the Word, and for that, I'm going to invite up Norm Funk. Uh, if you are not familiar with Norm, uh, Norm uh, was formerly from Westside Church. Really, originally, um, you know, he's speaking on eldership today, and Norm, you are, you've kind of been an elder in my life, like an older, much older man. I was giving me wisdom, because I was in youth, uh, and you were my youth leader and youth pastor, so... There's just a really big age difference is my point between us. Yeah, I think so you've, really made that. you're here. you've made that. I don't know. If, is that Emphatically. Clear? Okay. okay, good. Yeah, thanks good. thanks for being much. here, Norm. I'll take that as your gracious welcome again. Thanks very much. I, I will say this just to, you know, keep, you know, burning coals on his head, Matt's head. I love him to death, and I have so much respect for him, and I'm so excited for what he's doing here in the, in the ministry, but his friendship and, and all of that has been a big part of my, my joy in ministry. It's one of the great parts of it. So, and I love what's going on here. Man, I, I tell you, I, I said that to the first gathering and the second gathering, and I'll say that to you. I just love what's going on here. I'm so full of excitement for not only what's already happened, but what by God's grace will continue to happen as you stay committed to God's word and, and pray and, and just stay humble. Um, uh, the, the spirit is, is very committed to drawing men and women to places that lift up Jesus and to teach the Bible that the spirit wrote. He, he just draws men and women to that. And, and so that's what's going on here. And so it's, it's, it's just a great story. And, and, um, and to sound like an old man that I am, I am very proud of you and, and proud of Matt and the rest of the leaders here. So lots to do today. You're in the midst of a series. If you are new, you may not know this, uh, walking through uh, the book of 1 Timothy. And so I invite you to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're looking at verses 1 to 13 today. And so as you do that, as you find that text, just a quick reminder, or at the very least, uh, or perhaps even more than that, getting everybody kind of together, just to give you a little bit of background about this letter. Paul is the writer. Timothy's not the writer. Paul is writing to a youngish pastor named Timothy. He's probably, history suggests, in his late 20s, early 30s, somewhere around there. He's been a part of Paul's life and vice versa for a lengthy period of time. He was brought to the Lord and, and Paul took him under his wing, so to speak, brought him on missionary journeys. But now what he has done is he's left Timothy in Ephesus at that church, a church that Paul planted. And, and the motive behind this letter is actually seen in the verses that you'll look at next week. But Paul, Paul tells us why he writes the letter. So just notice it with me in verse 14 of chapter 3. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. So there's the motive. I'm writing this to you, Timothy, because as you lead this church, there are things that you need to implement. There are things you need to get rid of. There are things you need to raise up with one of those things being leadership. And that's what this text is all about. But before going there and just to continue under this theme of making sure we're all on the same page, let me ask a question that may be obvious to some of you, but perhaps for others, it won't be. The question is this. Who is the head of the church, ultimately? It's not Matt. It's not even Tim Keller, right? Neither of those two. The head of the church, without doubt and without question, is Jesus. Jesus is the head of the church. Why do I say that? Well, because of what Paul writes in Colossians 1.18, saying that Jesus is the head of the body, the church. Uh, Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 5, says that Jesus is the chief shepherd, 
And, and elsewhere, we read of Jesus as being the cornerstone. He's the straight edge of a building where all other stones take their cues from. That's who Jesus is. There, so there's no question. Jesus is in charge. The church is his. He bought it. He owns it. He reigns supreme over it. But, and it's a really important but, but as is the pattern of God, he reigns and rules via his people which is what takes place 2,000 or so years ago. If you know the story, Jesus goes to the grave. He raises from it three days later. For 40 days, he teaches, he appears, then he ascends. He tells his disciples, about 120 that were following him at that time in Jerusalem, stay there, wait for the promise. The promise comes on the day of Pentecost, and the church is birthed. The New Testament church is birth. During that period of time in our story, and this is our story, the, the church was led by the big A apostles. Those individuals that knew Jesus, followed Jesus, were appointed by Jesus, saw Jesus post-resurrection, they laid the foundation of the early church. That was the role they played. Paul writes in Ephesians 2.20, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles. If you're going to be an Acts 2 church, you're going to devote yourself to the apostles' teaching. So what's the problem? The church explodes. The gospel goes out. People here, there, and everywhere come to Jesus, and churches get planted. That's the book of Acts. The book of Acts is the gospel going out, churches being planted. But why is that a problem? Well, it's a problem because the apostles can't be everywhere. And so local church leadership needed to be developed and raised up, which introduces us to the office of elder and deacon. Read behind me on the screen what Paul writes to Titus, another young pastor. He writes this, this is why I left you in Crete. I was actually just in Crete a couple weeks ago, which is a humble brag, I know, but I, I think it's cool. I had sausages there. It was great. So that you might put what remained into order. And so if you plant a church, it has to be put in order. And one of those orderly things that you have to do, Paul writes to Titus here, appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, records something similar in Acts 14 when writing, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And if you fast forward, you go to the book of Philippians, when Paul writes the letter to that church in Philippi, he begins by addressing it this way, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who were at Philippi. So if you're a Christian, you're a saint just so you know that, okay? You're a saint in Christ Jesus. So he greets the church, calls them saints, but then he says, with the overseers, elders, episcopos, bishop, overseer, elder, and deacons. So, so there we have the two. So you have local elders and deacons being raised up, but here's the question that's gonna guide the rest of our time this morning. What qualifies one to be an elder or a deacon? Again, that's what our text is about today. So let's, let's take a look. Paul begins this way in verse 1. And what I'm going to do today, just to give you a forewarning, we're going to walk through this bit by bit by bit by bit. I'm going to comment. I'm going to watch your eyes glaze over a little bit. I'll bring you back. And then I'm going to leave you with some takeaways. Okay? But a lot of information today. 
So let's begin. Verse 1. Paul begins this way. By writing, the saying is trustworthy. Stop there. This is a favorite expression of Paul. He uses it here. He uses it in chapter 1. He uses it in chapter 4. You'll see that in a couple of weeks. What is it? What does it mean? Well, it's a point of emphasis. That's what it means. Uh, If you've ever begun a conversation with someone like, with with a word or a statement like, "I, I just have to be honest with you. You're not saying that you're normally dishonest, right? Hopefully you're not. What you're saying is, this is really important. There's something I want to point out. Jesus did something similar when he would begin statements of teaching with, truly, truly, I say to you. Obviously, Jesus is true all the time. He's Jesus. He's truth embodied. But he was emphasizing something. That's what Paul is doing here. If you could whittle down the book of 1 Timothy to three spots, it would surround these three. The saying is trustworthy. This is one of them. So the saying is trustworthy, but then notice what he goes on to say. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. That's the trustworthy saying. So we're introduced here first to the office of overseer. Deacon is coming. That it's an office, by the way, is important to note. For it means that it's a position in the church and not a spiritual gift of certain members of the church. In fact, the gift set of an overseer may vary greatly from overseer to overseer. In fact, I would say an elder team, an overseeing team, should have a a myriad, myriad of gifts within it. We'll talk more about gifts in a moment. Paul states here that if anyone aspires to this office, he desires a noble task. There are aspirations and desires that aren't, yes? Meaning noble. There are desires and aspirations that aren't noble. This isn't one of them. This is a good work. But because it's a noble task, there are very specific qualifications attached to it. Aspiration and desire alone doesn't qualify anyone for either of these offices. Which takes us to verse 2. Verse 2 lays out five musts of any overseer. It's not the only thing that we're going to look at. There are more, but it begins here. This needs to be true in every, every overseer. Therefore, number one, an overseer must be above reproach. That's number one. The first must. Meaning he must be above accusation. This is an overarching statement. It speaks of an overall consistency. This doesn't mean that he's sinless, for who amongst us is, but that his life and his actions are above board and plain for all to see. It means that there are no skeletons in the closet, that there is nothing hidden beneath the surface, that there is nothing that is being kept secret now that if it came out later would shame the gospel. That's number one. Second, he must be the husband of one, one wife. What, what does this mean? Well, I think there is little doubt that Paul has polygamy in mind when he writes this. At a time when polygamy was practiced, in certain circles at least, Paul is saying that it has no place in God's church. That's what he's saying. That's what he's telling us. This is actually a thing in parts of the world today. I'm going to Tanzania 
in, in May. I've been there a couple of times, but when I go in May, I'm teaching through 1 Timothy. And in Tanzania, if you're a man, you can have multiple wives. And so if you come into a place and you bring the gospel, people come to Jesus, there will be followers of Jesus who have multiple wives. So how do you speak into that with this? Well, you speak into it with what Paul has stated here. There is no place in the kingdom of God to have multiple wives. Now, does it get messy in places like Tanzania? Certainly it does. But what Paul is saying is that if you want to be an elder in a church, this can't be the case. What he is affirming here is what Jesus said in Matthew 19 when declaring that God's design for marriage, going back to the garden, is the union of one man and one woman. The question that always comes up is, well, what about David? What about Solomon and others who had multiple hundreds of wives and concubines? And my response is always the same. Just because the Bible records it doesn't mean it affirms it. There, there is a difference. What this doesn't mean then, going back to our verse, is that you have to be married to be an elder. Jesus wasn't married. Paul wasn't married. And I think they would make good elders. You know what I mean? They would, they would be good additions to any elder team. And nor does it mean that you can't be remarried and be an elder. But perhaps you get married again after the death of a spouse, or perhaps you get divorced under the exception clauses laid out in the scriptures and remarried thereafter. Neither disqualifies you from eldership. Paul goes on. He must be sober-minded, which isn't a reference to alcohol. That's coming but speaks of a sensibility and a level-headedness. You you don't freak out at the drop of a hat. You you don't chase new things all the time. Uh, You you don't lose your head at the first sign of trouble. Uh, You have an even-keeledness about you that brings calm to others. So when things seem to be falling off the planet, you walk in, and when people see you, there's a sense of, you know, I think we're going to be okay. There's someone who's keeping his head about him. And he's not losing his mind over this. Next, he must be self-controlled and respectable. And I put these qualities together because I I think they're best seen together. And they speak of self-leadership. You're disciplined. You're, You're a disciple of Jesus. You're a disciplined follower of Jesus. It means that you have ability to say no to things that are harmful to you. Those temptations, those places, those thoughts, and so forth. And say yes to those things that you need to say yes to. One writes that this has the idea of clothing yourself with well-orderedness. Furthermore, he must be hospitable, which doesn't... I said this to the second gathering. I think hospitality is something that's very confused. We're confused about in the church. We think hospitality speaks about just having people over and giving them a meal. That's a part of, it could be a part of hospitality, but that's not a biblical understanding of hospitality. Hospitality speaks of your relationship with strangers and outsiders and points to a commitment to evangelism especially. An elder must be committed to evangelism, of being welcoming to those people you don't know and aren't on your team, so to speak, If your mind goes to Jesus, who is accused by his opponents as being a friend of sinners, then I think your mind is going to the right place. If you think Good Samaritan, I think your mind is going to the right place. Additionally, 
he must be able to teach. Just note that. Matt brought this up last week. What this doesn't mean is that teaching be the primary gifting of an elder. There are those elders whose work especially is in the labor of preaching and teaching, and not all elders especially labor like that. But all elders need to be entirely capable of unpacking and defending the doctrines of the Christian faith. They have to have that ability. Which means regardless of how nice a guy you are, if you can't do this, you do not qualify for this role. To to not have this ability is like being a shepherd who doesn't know what a wolf looks like. Or what a, a sheep needs to be tended to well. That's not a good shepherd. Maybe a nice shepherd. Not a good shepherd. Paul writes, and you can read this on the screen behind me, to Titus, that an elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to, number one, give instruction in sound doctrine, that's number one, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So instruct and rebuke. If you're not ready to do both, then you're not ready to be an elder. It needs to be an area that you grow in before raised to that position, if that is that if that in fact is what what takes place? So those are the musts. Five musts. Verse two. Paul goes on from there to five must nots in verse three. He must not be number one a drunk <clears throat> a drunkard, which isn't calling for abstinence, but warning against addiction and dependence. This is spoken of later in verse eight as addiction to much wine. But I think in today's world, you can include any form of addiction to this and any form of harmful self-medication. He is not to be violent, but gentle. This, This isn't speaking of physical harm, although if that's an issue, that's a big one too. I mean, if you're out in the lobby here beating people up, you're probably not qualified to be an elder. But this is speaking more of a bullying attitude. This is a person who gets loud and unruly and intimidating in response to not getting their way. In contrast, Paul writes here, an elder is is to be gentle and respond with patience. Tied to this next, he must not be quarrelsome. This is the person who's quick to argue. This is the person who seeks to show their supposed intelligence through disagreement. You ever met this guy? Maybe close to somebody like this before three words get out of your mouth. There is somebody, no, I disagree. I think you're wrong. And it's like that time after time after time. This is the person who votes no all the time just because. Like you just don't want this person on your team. They suck the life out of a room. You don't want to go on a road trip with them, right? That's this person. Again, in contrast, just notice, hang a right to 2 Timothy and notice what Paul writes in verse, uh, chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. He says there, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, so that God may perhaps grant them repentance. Next, they're not to be a lover of money. Why? Because you can't serve both God and money. Because the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. Because the love of money is a heart condition. Because where your treasure is, treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
So you have a heart condition if you, if you love money. What is the love of money? As I said, it's, it's a heart condition where your, your joy, your pleasure, um, your security is found more in money than in relationship and fellowship with Jesus. That's a love of money. What's the problem with that? Why is that so dangerous? Well, in the church, it's dangerous because part of, the, of an overseer's responsibility is the managing of finances. And so if you have a love of money, there is a tendency, there will be a temptation, in fact, towards mishandling it. In fact, perhaps following the pattern of Judas, I love to rip off the money bags. There's been way too many stories and ministries of people, in fact, doing that. But perhaps it's something less, less than that, but still debilitating to a ministry like not having a generous spirit, not being ready to share, uh, perhaps putting faithless dependence on what you have in the bank instead of on God himself. Those types of things. That's why it's dangerous. So those are the musts. Verse 2, those are the must-nots. Verse 3, we move from there to the domestic in verses 4 and 5. Let me read it for you. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So these verses move us from the public to the private which makes sense for we may be able to fake it out there. But we can't fake it for long, at least at home, can we? Paul writes here that an elder needs to manage his household well. Manage speaks of care, which is the word Paul uses in verse 5. If he can't manage his home, how will he care for the church? Home life is a litmus test then. And to be clear, one more time, this isn't saying that you have to have the nicest house on the block or host the best dinners. It's referring to your marriage and your kids. How are they? How are things? Are you loving them? Are they respecting you? Are you present? Are, are you fulfilling the, the vows you committed to when you got up here for your child dedication and you and, you and your wife said, I will, to the to the things that, that the church is calling you to in the raising of your children? Are you fulfilling the vows you said I do to on your wedding day? What's home look like? like? But, but let me add this, because whenever you start talking about marriage and you start talking about kids, we can get very sensitive about it. We can also be hammered with a lot of guilt. Um, it's hard to be a, a spouse. It's hard to be married at times. Is it not? Marriage is tough, man. It's tough. Um, it's, and it's hard to be a parent. It's hard to be a kid. It's hard to be a parent. And so there can be so much guilt in, in this burden, this pressure. So I don't want to add more to that. I don't want to... I don't want to debilitate you. I don't want to discourage you. And so let me, let me add this. Specific to parenting and one's children. Just because you have great kids doesn't necessarily mean you're a rock star parent, does it? Right? And just because you have off the rail kids doesn't mean you stink as a parent either. 
I've known great parents whose kids have gone off the deep end. And I've also known some less than ideal parents whose kids are doing great. I mean, I've known, we all know these families where same parents, multiple kids, and and one, one kid is absolutely going off the rails and the other kid is just waiting for a vacancy in the Trinity. You know what I mean? Like, just a great kid, man. And this other kid's like way over here. And you go, what is going? So here's, here's how I would apply this text. If you aspire to be an elder, your family, if you have one, needs to be in full support and testify to who you are. That the public life and the public you and the home you is simpatico. And that the home, generally speaking, is a place of honor and respect. But if it isn't, that doesn't mean you're a failure. It may mean there are things you need to do, maybe implement, give yourself to, get some counseling in regard, but it doesn't mean you're a failure. It may simply mean that you have other things you should give yourself to at this time. Perhaps what's best for you at this time is not to be at an elders meeting on a Thursday night, but home instead. Paul carries on in verse 6. He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. This isn't a reference to age, by the way. Timothy himself is considered young in Paul's eyes. You'll read about that in chapter 4, verse 12. What this is doing is emphasizing that the office of overseer isn't for a newbie Christian. There, There needs to be a time of testing and theological training. Paul will later in chapter 5 talk about not being too hasty to lay on hands, which speaks of commissioning. Don't be too hasty in doing that. You need to take your time. You, you also need to see how they do in times of conflict when, when resources are tight, when things aren't going well. Anyone can lead when things are great. Is that not true? But how do you do when they're not? I mean, if you came down to Palm Springs and hung out with me when I'm on vacation in Palm Springs, and I love Palm Springs, hanging out by the pool every day, tanning, going golfing, all of that, you hung out. I'm the nicest guy in the world. Nice, cheery, happy, tan, golf, cheesecake factory, rinse, repeat, right? That's what we do. It's great. But take me out of that. Put me in a tense time. Things aren't good. It's two degrees, not 42 degrees, no golf, no money, people on my case, I'm on their case, not, can be very different. So the question is, what are we like when things aren't going well? How do they react? Have we seen them go through a difficult time? Do they gossip? Do they slander? Do they run to the hills? Do they get angry? Or do they remain even keeled? prayerful, sober-minded during those times. You need to see them in those times before you commission them. Additionally, do they involve themselves without being asked? Do they give? Do they pray? Do they invite? And so on when no one's looking. What's the danger for someone not spiritually mature? Well, Paul lays it out here, pride. Pride in the title and pride in the role, which was the case with the devil himself, which what, 
is what Paul talks about in this verse. He's the template. Don't raise up a recent convert or he may become conceited and puffed up like the devil was and be condemned like the devil was too. Paul finishes his focus on elders in verse 7, writing that moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So here we move from the, from the home to the marketplace. What do your coworkers think of you? What does your boss think of you? What do your employees think of you? If we ask those you rub shoulders with at the office or the gym or, or the coffee shop or at school, would they be shocked if, if your church was considering you for a leadership position like this? Would you bring disgrace? is verse 7. Because that's the devil's aim. That, that your professed life here is starkly different than what it's like out there. And the differences bring disgrace on the gospel. That's verse 7. And that's, again, the devil's aim. That's his desire. He wants to disgrace the gospel through us. So that's eldership. That's eldership. And in verses 8 to 13, the second part of our text, Paul moves on now to the role of deacon. Diakonos means servant, means minister. In the Old Testament, there were priests and there were Levites. The deacon mirrors the role of the Levite in many ways. The first hint of deacons in the New Testament church seems to take place in Acts chapter 6 when Stephen is raised up with six others to help give oversight and direction and leadership to the Grecian widow ministry. There are a bunch of Greek women, widows, not getting fed, and and the apostles at that time raise up these seven individuals and say, take it on so that we can continue on to give ourselves to the ministry of word and prayer. And I bring that up to you because that helps us understand the major differences between the two offices. Elders are those who oversee the church, care for the church, protect the church, gatekeep the church, teach the church, whereas deacons serve in the church. And what deacons give themselves up to, really give themselves to, excuse me, really depends on church to church to church to church. I I don't think you have a Grecian widow ministry here. But you may have another ministry that Tri-City has a need for. And so the elder, we have to give ourselves to ministry of prayer and the word. We need to, be, need to be prepared to anoint people with oil when they're sick. We need to protect the flock. We need to, we need to make sure things are tight here. But we, we need to take care of this. And so they raise up deacons. That's the difference between the two. Paul lays out the qualifications for deacons in verses 8 to 13. As I read them, and I'm going to read them all together, we'll note some similarities in them. Some are verbatim, some of the qualifications from the previous list. Others are packaged slightly differently, but essentially mean much of what we've already read. Let me show you reading verses 8 to 13. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. What we get here in that verse, if I can just press pause really quickly, is you don't need to be a deacon to serve in the church. 
Deacons give responsibility over service within the church as the elders give direction to everything under that, meaning deacons and and the like. So serve, prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanders, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves. It looks good on you, in other words. And also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So you serve faithfully, you come out of that while you're going through that. You come out of that and go, man, I, my faith has been strengthened and deepened. That's the benefits to this ministry area. So what do we see here? A couple quick comments coming out of the second section. First, with the use of the word likewise in verse 8, Paul affirms that the qualifications and role of deacon as being as important and vital as elder. In other words, this too is a noble task. I, I really want us to get this because I think there's a misunderstanding in the church that somehow thinks that deacon is less than a role, a less than role, less than an elder's role. It's just not true. Matt made that point emphatically last week too. And, and therefore, although the role may be different, the process And the scrutiny before raising them up should be the same, if it's as important as elder. That was certainly true with Stephen and the other six in Acts 6, when the apostle says, we need to have people full of the Spirit and have a good reputation to serve meals. I I just want to emphasize this, that although the role of deacon is different than the role of elder, is not less than, and nor should it be seen as a stepping stone. Elders don't need to be deacons first. And if you're a deacon, that doesn't necessarily mean that God has a call of elder on you. Besides their roles, what other differences are there between the two offices? Well, one, there is no mention of the deacon having the ability to teach. Which doesn't mean that the deacon can't teach or shouldn't pursue the ability to teach. It just simply means that a teaching ability or a gift set isn't a necessity for this role as it is for the elders. Secondly, the role of deacon is open to both men and women. Qualified men, qualified women. The role of elder, as Matt walked through last week, a great message last week. Um, If you haven't heard it, you need to go back and listen to it where he goes in depth on the subject of the roles of men and women in the church. But the role of elder is open only to qualified men, whereas the role of deacon is open to both. Why do I say that? A couple of reasons very quickly. I know my time is wrapping up. First of all, I say this because Paul mentions wives in verse 11. The, the word wives there can also be translated as women, which the NIV does. In in other words, why I bring this up, some suggest that Paul's laying out the qualifications here for women deacons. I lean this way for two reasons. One, if he wasn't, why why wouldn't he mention the same qualifications for elders' wives in the previous section? Why an emphasis on deacons' wives and not on elders' wives too? So some people say, no, he's just talking about the wives of a deacon, and the deacon is, is only male. I, again, I disagree. 
And second, and taking away all doubt in my mind, Paul speaks of a female deacon or a deaconess in Romans 16. In Romans 16, verses 1 and 2, we read, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant, a deaconess of the church of Sancria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. And then there are other women in the New Testament where the title deacon isn't associated with them, but what they do, the roles that they carry out, is very much deacon-like. I think of Lydia, I think of Aquila, and so forth. We've covered a lot today. You feel like you've just been inundated with information, right? Well, here's the thing. Here's what's interesting about our text. There's a lot in here. There's much in these verses But there's much that isn't, that requires some prayer and reasoning from local church to local church. For example, we aren't told how many elders and deacons a local church should have. Seven? Three? Twelve. Twelve's a good number. 144, right? How many? There's no insight given on the difference between paid and lay elders and deacons. So should you have someone on staff who's also a deacon or an elder? It can get messy. Some churches go, no, only the lead pastor is an elder. No other staff or deacons or elders. It's staff. Okay? You have to wrestle with that. There's no mention of term limits. Should there be? And if so, why and how long? I'm not a fan of term limits at all. That's just a personal opinion. Somebody serves for three years, gets some experience, and then you say, see you later. Let's bring in more rookies. Doesn't make any sense to me. There is no mention of process either. We, we do know, by the way, if you have term limits, I don't mean to offend you when I say that. Good for you. That's good. It makes a lot of sense to me. We do know. <laughs> we do know that prayer, so process, talking about process, we do know that prayer and fasting, observation, evaluation, and affirmation play a vital role, but how does that get fleshed out? How long do you observe? What's the process of raising them up? How do you affirm them? Who who affirms them? What what role, what role do you, the church, the saints, play in the affirmation of elder or deacon or both or none or so on and so forth. Success, here's, here's a fifth observation. Success in the marketplace isn't mentioned as a qualifier. Only witness in the marketplace is. That stands out. So if you can build a business, make big bucks, start things from scratch, does that qualify you by itself? Some things to wrestle with. Let me begin wrapping up. And I got just a few minutes left. I'll wrap up with two takeaways. I'll call them takeaways. Observations, application, whatever you want to call it. Here's the first. And it comes in the form of a question. And it takes us full circle. What do you aspire to? I ask for a couple reasons. One is, I ask on the front end that there are things that we aspire to and desire that aren't noble, yes? 
And you're, yeah, you're, I watched your heads. You, yeah. So what do you aspire to? I, I also ask because the reality is the high majority of you and those in any local church won't serve as an elder or a deacon. And that's okay. And yet, that doesn't remove the call to aspire to the characteristics that mark them. You may not desire the office, but we should all desire by God's grace to be the type of person described here. Which leads to a final takeaway. I've been an elder for the past 24 years. I, as you know, most, I, I don't know if you know, I'm unemployed now. I'm not an elder anymore. Um, but I've been an elder for a Now, when people ask me what I'm doing now, I'm modeling. That's what I tell them. I'm, I'm, I'm not working, obviously, but that's what I'm doing. Um, but I've been an elder for the past 24 years. I was an elder for about 10 years at Willingdon, just short of that, and then 14 14 at Westside, I've, I've served on ad hoc elder teams here, Christ City, Crossridge, the Shore, churches that you're familiar with. Why, why didn't, don't do that, my thing is freaking out on me. All of a sudden, Siri came on. Uh, I don't know why that is. Um, my point is, I, I've spent a lot of time on elders' teams, spent a lot of times in elder, elder meetings, but... When I think of the past 24 years and I look at this list, there have been plenty of times where I have not been above reproach. And yes, I am the husband of one wife. I have one wife. I don't have a secret wife in Boca Raton or something like that but I haven't always been a good husband. Sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, not always. Hospitable, I want to be a friend of sinners, but quite frankly, there are a lot of times where I just want my time. You know what I mean? People are only seen as a bother. Able to teach, I don't know. Not always ready to teach. Not always willing. Not a drunkard. I'm not a drunkard. But confession is, there have been plenty of times over the last 24 years where I've found more comfort in a glass of wine or a beer. Not violent, but gentle. Not quarrelsome. Again, not always. I've been a bully as a leader at times. Not a lover of money. I love when I open up my wallet and I find a 50 in there. You know what I mean? Something about finding a 50. Or when you bring that jacket out after it's been put away all, you know, summer and and you go in the pot and there's like a 20 there and you get so excited. Like, what is that? You know that question, I've asked the question a lot. What gives you more excitement, walking into a mall with $500 to spend or a church with $500 to give? What gives you more excitement? 
I must manage and care for my household well. I, I got great kids. Love Jesus, walk with Jesus, great kids. But I haven't always been a good daddy. Not a recent convert. I'm not a recent convert. I came to Jesus at 17, but I sure act like one at times. There are times where I, I don't act converted at all. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders. I guess it's, it just depends on who you ask. When I share that, some of you may be going, oh man, is it good that you're not an elder anymore? You don't qualify, and the fact of the matter is you may be right. But here's the thing. There is only one who meets the qualifications on this list. Only one. Jesus himself. The only one truly above reproach. Tempted as we are, but without sin. And what a husband. Like what a husband Jesus is. The groom who loved his bride and gave himself up for her. What a husband. Not violent, but humble and obedient to the point of death on a cross. Not quarrelsome, but silent before his shears. The one who doesn't break bruised reeds. The one meek and lowly in heart. The one who is not only hospitable. Are you kidding me? He pursues the lost. He knocks on the doors of their hearts and he says, I want to come in and dine with you. What hospitality, man. And did he love money? He was rich. But he became poor so that we could become rich. Generosity without compare. And boy, did he care for his family. He he loved his brothers and sisters to the end. You you see, Christ City, or Tri-City, excuse me, this, this list isn't given to us primarily to measure ourselves by it and conclude, oh yeah, I got this. If that's you, that's a problem. This list should humble us. This list is given so we will cry out, oh God, help me. This list should take us to Jesus because this list paints a picture of Jesus and that's why we should all aspire to it. He's the prize. He's the upward call. He's the noble pursuit. The saying is trustworthy. So let me close this way. In in 2 Corinthians 2, Paul talks about the ministry he'd been given. And reflecting upon it, he asks, really, you can see him probably crying out, asking, crying out rhetorically, who is sufficient for such things? The answer is no one. 
But he then goes on to say, just several verses later in 2 Corinthians 3, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers. You see, Tri-City, being able to check the boxes on this list doesn't make us sufficient for ministry. Only God does. Christ alone. Jesus in us and through us. He is our sufficiency and he makes us sufficient. To him be the glory. Amen? Amen. Let me pray. And so we praise you. We bless you, Jesus. We thank you for doing and accomplishing what we can't, weak as we are in the flesh. And I'm so grateful that you call us to partner, to participate in the kingdom, in kingdom work. But we do cry out, that type of work that matters not only for this time, but for eternity, who is sufficient for that? And forgive us for thinking that we can, in ourselves, be okay and be ready and be competent. We can't. We aren't. But you didn't leave us to ourselves. You came. By way of your spirit, you sent, indwelling, empowering, changing, transforming. And we do. We do bless you and thank you that we are changing from one degree to the next. That this list, by way of the spirit's work in us, as God works in us and as we work out, we are changed. That this is more us today than it was last week, last month, last year. And so I thank you for that transformation. And I pray for this ministry especially that you would raise up more men and women who fit the bill here. But even more importantly than that, I pray that this ministry will be one where they all look at this text and go, I want that for me. I want that because that's more of Jesus in me and through me. So I pray that their affections would change. Love of Christ would change and deepen. For the glory of your name and their good, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.